Good morning, Zion, or good afternoon, or good evening. Uh, whatever time it is that you're joining us for service today, I know not all of us can make it at 11, uh, but whenever it is at your time or wherever you are, I pray that you're able to gather with one of our house churches and be in community with others so that we can encourage each other and grow with one another, even if that might have to be online. So last week, we heard Pastor Justin remind us that we as a church, and by church, I mean capital C church, that is a universal global church, the mission that all Christians are on, um, and one that we must not forget, even though we are going through the worst year ever. Amen? So there's a truth for believers that the worship that we are engaging in right now is going to be eternal. We are worshiping God now in our context, and we will be worshiping him forever, uh, eventually for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But the one thing that we will not be doing when Jesus returns is evangelize. We will be no longer bringing people to him. We will be no longer sharing the gospel and offering people the hope of salvation. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that I love. And he says this, he says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Isn't that a crazy idea? That the church, <clears throat> the church exists in this present age so that we may join together with Christ so that Jesus as our head can continue his mission of making disciples. So with all the busy work that we are doing, are we still working with Christ? Are we still engaged in this mission? But the challenge I find is often not that we don't know what the mission is. If we've been walking with Christ for a while, if we've been in church, Chances are we've heard about the Great Commission. And if you haven't, if you are new to the faith, you are new to this idea of Christianity, let me update you. The Great Commission is this. It's the final major command that Jesus left his followers before he ascended to heaven. And that was for us as his followers to continue making disciples of all nations, of all the people groups on the earth, who by his grace will be saved from destruction through their faith in him. And this is the reason why churches often have outreach ministries, they have like youth concerts, you know, all the awkward stuff that we do to try to engage non-Christians. Uh, but the reason why we don't witness as much as we do is not that we don't know what our mission is. It's more of a question of how. How do we do this thing that Jesus left for us to do? So the passage we're going to be talking about today in Matthew is actually going to be less about what our mission is and how we can do it in a way that Jesus would approve of. We're going to look at his specific instructions to his disciples and how they would apply to us today. If we are in fact on mission with Jesus, we have to learn how to do this mission Jesus's way. So pray with me. 
Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we can trust you with the work that you have called us to do, and we pray that you would illuminate your scriptures, that we may hear what you are saying to us. Father, I pray for myself that you would calm my nerves, that you would give me the words that you wish me to speak, and even if I should fumble, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would learn from you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Early on in Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus begins his ministry by preaching, uh, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in other words, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. But the first few chapters in Matthew's Gospel pretty much reads like a montage of all the things that Jesus is doing in his ministry. So he's doing a lot of teaching. He teaches and expounds upon the Jewish scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament. He's talking about greed and lust. He's talking about hate. He's calling out hypocrites. And in between his, his teaching, he's healing a lot of people, a lot of people. He's casting out demons. He's restoring sight. Uh, he's healing people who have been bleeding for 12 years, well, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Matthew can't record all the activities that Jesus is doing in his ministry. So he sums it up twice with the same phrase. So in chapter 435, Matthew writes, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages in Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. He says this in 435, and then he says it again in 935. So this is the context that we are in. In the context, which we're going to start reading now, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. It is the first book in the New Testament. If you are using a phone, scroll with me to Matthew chapter 10. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if the house is worthy, let your peace, whoops, sorry. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, 
Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he starts calling disciples. So the word disciple is another word for student. He starts calling students to follow him. Now back in that day, if you wanted to be a disciple of someone, like say a rabbi or a spiritual teacher, it's usually the student who would approach, the potential student who would approach the teacher and say, hey, can you disciple me? Can you teach me? But Jesus does the opposite. He's calling people to follow him. And he amasses a group of followers. And in this passage, he calls 12 of them, calls 12 of them together, and he gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal illnesses and sicknesses and afflictions. So he, he essentially gave them the authority that he had to do exactly what he had been doing. It's interesting because we don't know why he selected these 12 people. You know, some of the names we recognize because Matthew or the other gospels have recorded their calling story. Uh, people like Simon Peter and Andrew. We've heard of them, but a lot of these names we've never heard before. Like Thaddeus. Do we know who Thaddeus is? We don't. And a lot of the names never appear again in the scriptures. But the fact that we don't know them, the fact that they're not famous to us, should actually comfort and encourage us. Because as far as we know, they're regular, faithful students of Jesus. They're faithful followers of him, just like us, just like we are. If Jesus were to call a list of followers today to send on a special mission, it's unlikely that he would have a list of all-star super Christian pastors like Matt Chandler, Michael Todd, John Piper, Justin Matera. It would be more likely that his list went more like this. John, who is called Johnny, and his wife Jenny Lee, Marilyn, the daughter of Nick and Marjorie, and her husband Louis, David, his brother Daniel, and his wife Stephanie, Joel, the nurse, and his wife Florence, it would be a list of faithful followers, not famous followers, but faithful followers whom Jesus would then empower. And that is our first point. If we are going to do Jesus's mission, Jesus's way, we must understand that we are ordinary people sent with authority from a supernatural God. We are disciples of Christ not necessarily full of talent, not necessarily eloquent. We haven't planted a church. We're not extroverted. Maybe we're not confident. We're not seminary degree Christians. But even better, we're disciples who have authority and power given from God. We are the intern in the office with the backing of the CEO. And if we fail to understand this, we run the risk of feeling inadequate. We run the risk of feeling inadequate and ineffective because we feel like we don't have the qualifications to do what he's calling us to do. Not only that, if we fail to recognize that it, we need his power to engage those who are lost, we might also miss the fact that this mission is a spiritual mission. Even if we stumble on our words, 
even if we get rejected. Maybe we don't have the knowledge. It's true. We are terrible evangelists. Even if that is all true, the Lord might be changing someone's heart in a way that we cannot see. I remember when I used to witness to my sister. So if some of you know my story, I became a Christian at the end of high school. So I went to college very Christian, but my sister, who's younger than me, we were raised culturally Christian, but she was, not, she was not about that. So by the time she got to college, I was still in college, and I remember late nights when I was witnessing to her through AIM. You guys remember AIM? I was witnessing to her through AIM while she was in her dorm room and I'm in my dorm room, and we would have these long conversations, and at the end of every conversation, she'd be like, all right, I'll think about it, and we'd sign off. Um, and then a few weeks would pass, we'd have the same long conversation. She'd be like, I'll think about it. And one night, we did the same thing. We had a long conversation, and I was just telling her, Jackie, you have to commit to the Lord if you want to grow. She said, I'll think about it. And then the next day, she told me uh, after our conversation that she had committed her life to Christ. So I did not know that, but I was being faithful to the Lord. Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians that when he approached them, this is like a confession for him. He wrote in his letter that he approached them in weakness and fear. And he said that his message wasn't even plausible. Meaning, according to Paul, he didn't even make sense. He didn't know what he was saying. And yet, a church was planted there. It's the Spirit who helps people understand his gospel. And if we are part of his mission, we must understand that that power, that authority to engage people, is coming from God himself. Now let's get more into some of Jesus' specific instructions, instructions for his 12 students. First, he tells them not to go uh, to the town of Samaritans, um, not to go to Gentiles pretty much, but stay and minister to their fellow Jews. This is a mission for them that's limited in scope. It's interesting because it's not actually until the end of Matthew's gospel that the Great Commission appears. So it's at the end of Matthew's gospel that the mission changes and Jesus tells his followers to then make disciples of all nations. But for this mission that he has his 12 on, he's given them the authority to cast out demons, to heal illnesses, and he tells them, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And what are they to do exactly? Jesus told them to proclaim same message he was proclaiming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message that he was preaching. John the Baptist was saying the same thing. The full message is actually repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the verb that we read is translated as proclaim could also be translated as declare, announce, or simply make known. Make known this to the people. Our second point is that in order to do Jesus's mission, we must clearly explain the gospel. What is the gospel? So before Jesus's crucifixion, the thing that John the Baptist, Jesus, and his disciples were calling people to do was to repent, was to turn away from their sins get right again with God because the kingdom of heaven is near. Or in the other gospels, it says the kingdom of God is near. God's reign has begun. 
What does that mean? Well, to the Jewish people, it might not make that much sense to us, but to the Jewish people, they knew exactly what this meant. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, their prophets had prophesied that there would be an everlasting kingdom that God would establish. And the king would come from the line of David, from King David, and he would be a good God, he would restore Israel. This was important because Israel was judged and destroyed in kingdom after kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the Roman empire took them over. But they had hope that a Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, they had hope that a king was going to come and establish this everlasting kingdom. So when Jesus and his disciples are saying, the kingdom of heaven is near, that's the kingdom. Get right with God, because God is going to rule. Now, after Jesus gets crucified and resurrected, and he gives the Great Commission, he ascends back into heaven, we see that the apostles tell the gospel a little bit differently. It mostly stays the same. They're, they're calling people to repent from their sins. But instead of saying that the kingdom is near, or the kingdom is at hand, instead of talking about God's kingdom, they're also saying, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king, and he came, and you killed him. He came, and he died so that, he could, so that our sins would be paid for and we would have salvation. If we follow him, we would be redeemed. The good news now is not only that the king has come, but that the king has sacrificed himself for us. You know, what's often missing when we declare the gospel or share the gospel, I know we like to use the word share, it's a little fuzzy, but when we share the gospel with others, we often miss this aspect of talking about sin. It's this piece, it's this piece where we call, it's this piece that's missing where we call people to turn away from the lives that they have been living in rebellion against God and to pledge allegiance to Jesus and follow him. And when we miss that part, that unfortunately creates a lot of Christians who love the fact that Jesus loves them, but have never reconciled what he saved them from. It also creates a lot of non-Christians who are very confused about the gospel message because what we tell them is that Jesus loves you. Cool, cool, I love myself too. What does that mean? And we, and we kind of dance around it, right? We kind of dance around, yeah, he loves you, but he also died, okay, cool. So in my 20s, I'll, I'll share with you a story. In my 20s, I went on a Christian retreat with an old church. And it was the kind of retreat where you invite all your non-Christian friends and you go away, at, you get out of the city. And it's the last night of the retreat. And as we Christians do, we all sat in a circle and we had a mic going around and the lights are dim and we're sharing testimonies. And everyone's sharing testimonies about how God moved in them at the retreat and how God has done such great things for them in their lives. And I felt the spirit telling me to take the mic. And I hate when he does that because then I start to tremble. Uh, but it, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't let up, so, so I, have to, I have to get the mic. So I take the mic and I don't remember my exact words, 
But I told all the people in that circle that the reason why Jesus died was so that they would not go to hell. And if they did not follow him, that is surely where they would end up. And in hindsight, that was probably a downer to all the celebratory atmosphere. But the next day, several of our guests who were not believers came up to me and said, thank you. Thank you for explaining this to us because we didn't know. We had no idea, like we didn't understand why everyone kept talking about Jesus. They weren't my guests. Other people invited them, but somehow they never understood the gospel. They never understood the part that would give them salvation. So we must, if we want to do Jesus's mission, we have to, we have to, this is so important. We have to clearly explain the whole gospel if we want to be effective, if we want to see people saved. We cannot give them pieces, we cannot dance around, whether it's through texting or online or, or verbally, it has to be explained. Now Jesus continues his instructions. Now we're on verse eight. Jesus tells his disciples to go out, heal people, cast out demons, raise the dead. So our third point is that not only must we clearly speak the gospel, we have to minister to people's felt needs. What do I mean by that? Well, this is sometimes a contentious, contentious debate amongst Christians. Because what's more important? Is it more important that we share with them the gospel? Should our focus be the conversion of their spiritual state? Or should we also minister to people's poverty and suffering and oppression? Uh, a lot of churches confuse these two aspects. And I'll, I'll, sh I'll share with you why. A lot of churches, they make short-term mission trips. I'll call it a mission trip. And they'll send people to a country which is predominant, often predominantly Christian already, at least culturally. The gospel's around. And they'll help build an orphanage, they'll help run the camp, run the youth camp. And there's very little focus on evangelism. Now, those trips are really more like ministry trips. They're more like service trips. And yet, we think of that, oh, that's mission. Mission is helping people. But on the other hand, there are Christians who would give a homeless guy a Bible before they would give him food or clothes or help him find a home. From my understanding of the scriptures, Jesus was doing a lot of both. He was, doing, he was, he was confronting people about their sin. He was teaching them. He was proclaiming the gospel. But he also cared about their suffering. And he was telling the disciples to do the same. What we have to be careful of is not falling on either end of the extremes. And it's very possible, depending on our personality, maybe just depending on how we were raised in the church, we were raised in the church, or what we were taught, we have to be careful not to be on one end where all we're doing is loving our neighbor and being good, great people to them and hoping somehow in the middle they'll figure out the gospel. And that doesn't work. Or we're on the other extreme, where all we're doing is preaching the Bible, preaching the word, inviting them to church, and yet we're showing no love, no love that accompanies what we're preaching. Why must we care about the struggles of those that we are witnessing to? 
We must care because it shows people that this kingdom is good and this Jesus, this king is good, that the kingdom coming is worth living for, that Jesus is worth following. Otherwise, the gospel is just, it's just an abstract idea. It's just something that happens, I'll help you when you die. And most people really don't think they'll die anytime soon. I'll give you an example about how proclaiming the gospel and caring for people's struggles, they don't have to compete with each other. So many of us have been caught up with uh, protesting the injustices that black men and women have experienced in our current system of law. But as we protest, now this is almost, this is something that has upset Christians and non-Christians alike. As we are protesting alongside people who don't know Christ, are we also, as we care for the suffering, for the oppression, are we also telling them the gospel? Are we telling them that it's not supposed to be like this and it's not going to be like this forever? Are we telling our unbelieving friends as we fight for political and cultural change or is Christ the king not even in the picture? We must proclaim clearly the true gospel and we must accompany it by ministering to people's needs. Let's get to verse 9 and 10. Jesus tells the disciples not to acquire or get any money, that means don't fundraise, for their trip. Uh, he tells them don't bring a bag, don't bring extra clothes. They are to embark on this mission relying solely on God and solely on the hospitality of the culture of the people that they will be talking to. Uh, and what this emphasizes for us is that we have to see that this mission is urgent. Why is Jesus telling them, oh, don't bring a bag, don't, don't bring extra sandals, don't, you don't need two tunics? At the end of chapter nine, right before chapter 10, Jesus, before he sends the 12 disciples out, we read that Jesus saw the crowds who were harassed and helpless, and he felt compassion for them. Compassion, crowds of people. The gospels make it clear that Jesus was often bombarded with throngs of people in need. The effects of sin had ravaged his people, and Jesus' heart was pained. So he gave his disciples no instruction to prepare for this trip. The disciples just had to go. He's essentially saying, you don't need to worry about money. The culture is going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. You don't need an extra shirt. You don't need sandals. Just go. And I feel like we have to ask ourselves honestly this question. If we share this heart of Jesus that he has for those who are lost, do we see these crowds these people that are suffering, these people who are in need of Christ and in need of a savior, whether or not their physical circumstances show it, do we see the spiritual need of those who have no salvation in Christ? Or have we burdened ourselves with other things on our mind, other things in our lives? Like maybe we're like, God, I know I should talk with this person who is struggling and he doesn't know the Lord, but I got to finish this paper first. I got to finish this paper for school. Or maybe we think, yeah, God, maybe when the kids are grown, you know, I got to, you know, they got, 
I got to do homeschooling now. Like there's just so much at home I have to worry about. I can't, I can't take time to have coffee with this person right now. Maybe we're thinking about our careers. We have so much holding us back, burdening us, distracting us. Maybe instead of seeing crowds that need Christ, we're just looking and we're just watching the news and all we see is the pandemic, the protest, and the politics. There's this phrase that they tell new moms, which I don't think is that helpful, but they say it. They say the days are long, but the time is short. We might think we have all the time in the world to evangelize, to especially to our loved ones. But Peter writes in 2 Peter that the reason why Jesus has not returned is because he desires no one to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus has not come back because he's still waiting for people to come to know him. He's waiting for us to do the job that he called us to do. He also says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I know many of us have been struggling and wrestling with how our country's leaders have been handling the pandemic. But I want us also to think about how poorly we have stewarded the gospel that God has given for us to share. How many people suddenly realized as their loved ones are suddenly on an intubator, suddenly they got COVID, suddenly they're in the hospital, suddenly their heart problems, their blood pressure, all this is catching up to them. How many of us as Christians suddenly realized, God, please save this person. Let him know you, Jesus. How many of us have messaged our, our Bible study groups and messaged our church, please pray. Pray for my brother-in-law. Pray for, pray for my friend that I grew up with because he doesn't know Christ. And now he's sick. Let's not wait until more people who we love, who we know, are on the brink of meeting Christ before we decide to share with them he who will save them. The mission is urgent. Now, our final point, uh, simply because this mission is urgent, uh, simply because we need to get going, we need to make known this gospel that will save people, we need to show people that this kingdom is good, simply because the time is urgent, it doesn't mean that we should do this haphazardly. Now we're in verses 11 to 13, Jesus tells his disciples to exercise discernment. He tells them that when they go to a village or a town, to find out who there is worthy. And by worthy, he means those who will not only be hospitable to them, but also be receptive to the message that they bring. Uh, if they reject the disciples, Jesus tells them to shake the dust off your sandals when you leave. It's a sign of condemnation on them. That was just a phrase that meant, you know, sever all ties. Um, they rejected the gospel. So as Jesus' representatives in this mission, we also need to be discerning. We need to look for those who might be seeking him, in whom the Holy Spirit might be working in. 
The opposite of being discerning might be getting into argument after argument with an atheist who likes to harass you on Facebook. That's not the mission that Jesus sent us on. We have to be discerning. It might be trying to talk to someone who clearly has told you they don't want any part of this. We know from the scriptures, Jesus did not beg anyone to follow him. We know that even, we know that him confronting people of their sin caused people to walk away. And for us, if there's no interest, we also have to leave them to God. But how, how can we know this? How can we know who we're supposed to evangelize to? How are we supposed to know who the spirit is working in? This actually came up in my house church last week when we were talking about uh, how to discern. And my answer was to seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and to keep in step with what he is doing. You know, the disciples here in this mission, they don't have the Holy Spirit now. They only receive the Holy Spirit after Jesus leaves, after Jesus ascends back to heaven. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will see that in all aspects of their ministry, the Holy Spirit is right there performing miracles, uh, teaching them, guiding them. It says that the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going to Asia. Why? We don't know. But it says the angel of the Lord, God himself, led Philip to go to this chariot in which an Ethiopian eunuch happened to be sitting there reading the book of Isaiah. How in the world would Philip ever know that there was someone studying Isaiah, studying the prophet Isaiah, not understanding and waiting for someone to come teach him? It was because the angel of the Lord told him. And so for us, for us to be discerning. Is this the right time to talk to this person? Are these the words to say? Is he, is he interested? Or maybe he's gonna, maybe I don't know. I would say that trust the Holy Spirit and, and pray for your friends and pray for those that you're considering witnessing to. So we've gone through a lot in this passage, a lot of stuff. Um, and his instructions highlight so many things that we can use for fulfilling his mission today. We can feel encouraged that we are sent with authority from God. We don't, we don't have to feel like we're powerless. Uh, we don't have to feel like we're inadequate. We must be careful to explain to others the, the true gospel. If you struggle with this, and I encourage you in your house churches, do some role play have someone play the someone who's not Christian and have someone play the Christian. Just, just practice sharing the gospel however you can and try to avoid using weird Christian language. Um, we have to also accompany our preaching of the gospel with acts of service. Uh, I know last week, Joseph Martin, I think, posted on the app asking if there are any opportunities in the local community that our church could partner with. Do that, do that in your house church. Look at how you can glorify God by giving an example of the kingdom to come. Pay attention to what people are struggling with. One thing we talked about was sharing Jesus's heart for the lost and realizing that the mission is urgent. This might be hard to do, but spend time with him and you will see that is what is on his heart. Spend time in devotionals, pray, ask the Lord for this heart. If you're like, yeah, I'll be honest with you, Tiff. 
I don't really care about anybody. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. Just as a side note, you don't have to feel something to obey something. It helps a lot, though. It helps a lot. So I would advise you seeking that heart. But even if you don't feel it, that doesn't mean you don't do something that the Lord has called you to do. And the last point was that we have to be discerning. We have to trust the Spirit. We have to pray for those that we're witnessing to, the ones that we're considering witnessing to. The time is short. Jesus himself told the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he said, I am coming soon. So Zion, let's be part of helping to gather his lost sheep.